Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, from a very young age, he became obsessed with Buster Keaton and others who remain household names to this day, like my guest, Bill Irwin, who is a household name to this day. In this episode, we talk about his childhood, we talk about what made him fall in love with physical comedy and deeply understanding what it is to be a clown, what made him pivot from clowning, as it were, to acting how he approaches character, what he thinks about before he begins working on a piece of his own, how he met David Shiner, what it is that excites him about performing and what it means to be an actor today. I'm so honored to have Bill Irwin on the show and to have spent an afternoon talking with him and now I get to share him with you. Welcome Bill Irwin and enjoy. A-okay. My guest today is the award-winning creator, storyteller, actor, writer, teacher, clown, TV and movie star, and all around just brilliant artist, Bill Irwin. He has won two Tony Awards, Drama Critics Award, the Outer Critics Circle Award, the MacArthur Fellowship. Mm. He is Mr. Noodle on Sesame Street and also Carrie Loudermilk in the Marvel series Legion. The same person has done both those things. He's been in over 25 films, including Popeye, a fan favorite, and Rachel Getting Married, for which he was also bestowed with many awards. Um, I'm going to stop talking about your resume because people can Google that and just get right to Bill Irwin. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Ilana, I'm going to let being worn to a frazzle be my organizing principle here uh, because in getting to talk about what we do, I sometimes get very... Uh, erratic and chatty and trying to get millions of phrases in. I'm going to let exhaustion inform me and I hope keep me more coherent as we talk. So you're going to let exhaustion be your guide? I'm hoping so. I'm hoping it will improve my com- my storytelling capacity. Yeah. Well, do you want to start with, um, because we could really start anywhere. It's um, May 2021 and uh, and rather than you know going back to the day you were born or future dreams, which I would love to cover, um, tell me why you're so exhausted today specifically. Oh, it is such a bore to, for people to talk about how tired they are. Uh, I'm just hoping it may make for more coherence. It is, you're right, it is May 25th, 2021, and that is one year to the day uh, from the death of George Floyd. And the transformation in our world, in our society, the transformation we hope for 
uh, is ongoing. And and uh, what does a guy who had lived all these decades uh, with white male privilege have to say at this moment? I'm not sure. I hope to be a decent listener, uh, except to mark the day and to say that that's one trip around the sun uh, that we've had that we hope will make for a different uh, world that we live in. What is the artist's role in all of this? And what can be the artist's role in all of this? And is it significant? Um, and have you remained feeling significant when the world when the world issues feel so overwhelming. And it's been very heartening for me to listen to things that you've said in the past about uh, where entertainment kind of fits in this world um, with the hope to engage. So I wanna go back because you talk a lot about being sort of a political theater artist at, at, in your early days. So first of all, um, my friend, uh, when you were growing up, because you're a hero to so many, who were your heroes? Oh, well, it was a distant, distant time, unimaginable <laughs> to people of your generation and other generations. But I grew up in the 1950s with Jackie Gleason, Art Carney, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin as my heroes. Uh, whom of course I only knew via this fairly new medium. I mean, we, we didn't get it. We didn't have a TV when I was born. We got one when I was three, I think. And I remember them turning it on. And uh, thus I was, you know, sort of came uh, into being right at the cusp of this technology uh, fire that we live in. And so those were my heroes without ever having seen any of them live. Then as I uh, got further infected by the virus that performers uh, are prey to and, and realized that, oh, for better or worse, this wasn't just a thing that I found fascinating. This was for better and worse, my life's work and the way I was gonna have to try to pay the bills as well as find what was most meaningful to me. Uh, I, uh, then I saw people in front of me, uh, live. And often they were heroes, uh, people that nobody would recognize by name now because that's sometimes the nature of seeing live performance. It's, it's much less uh, elevated celebratory uh, process than seeing things on television or on film. Many names get dropped by the wayside, but I'd see somebody do a dance step and realize that's a magic that I need to try to have. I may never get that magic where the legs seem to work independently of each other. Or there's a, there's a skating motion that you can't quite uh, fathom. I may never get that, but I know I have to try. And, and that person in front of me right now is a hero for, for showing me that. And were you super young when you started to kind of, I don't know, think about being a performer yourself? Or was this later in life that you understood, oh, that's a profession that people do? <laughs> what a good question. What a good question. I was very young when it took over my thinking. And however, in that time, that post-war time, my parents were, were depression era, children, children of the depression. Sure. Uh, it was not looked upon as a very smart thing to think about doing with your life, except as a kind of hobby once you'd mastered some other uh, supposedly more dependable craft. And that's one of the interesting things about living all these decades is you realize, oh, people who pursued more dependable lines of work were often <laughs> through no fault of their own, were often uh, buffeted by changes in culture that performers uh, didn't necessarily have to deal with. So uh, yes, early, early on, but it was a while before I thought, oh, well, you mean do this for my life's work? You know, my father was uh, an actor in college. I didn't know that till fairly late in his life. And then he became a set designer in college. And that was very 
central to his life. So he was a set designer after he retired in his 70s, 80s, 90s. But he, the war came, he became an aeronautical engineer, which is to say he went and built airplanes because they needed him so fast and so many. He worked under uh, a camouflage netting in uh, outdoors in Santa Monica, California, because they were sure the enemy might be uh, approaching California as they had Pearl Harbor. So uh, that was the kind of model in my mind in many ways is uh, it's pretty unlikely that you would be doing this for a living. And it still kind of informs my vision. I think, yeah, well, oh, I guess, yeah, there is no one else to sort of fill this little storytelling function. So I guess that is what I do for a living. So in earnest, do you start studying let me ask you this, which came first, the actor or the clown? Because you are so well-known in, in both lanes, as it were. <laughs> um, so how does this happen? And then you just talked about dance and obviously you're such a dancer in, in all the work you do. So like, can you just peel away a little bit the, the layers of this onion and like, how, how are you you? Ilana, I'm going to give you a really weaselly answer. Okay. Say, I mean, it sounds kind of artsy fartsy as well as weaselly, but I actually not sure I could can know which is first because uh, clowning, physical comedy, just fascinated me as a kid. I was doing things after watching, you know, TV was only on two hours a night, and then I couldn't be put to bed because I was trying this or that. Uh, at the same time, I'm really lucky that I did train as did basic actor training at UCLA, bless them, in the 70s with everything, uh, with the world falling apart around us uh, because that was a basic, um, a basic introduction to looking at a scene, figuring out mm -hmm. how to approach a scene, how to tell a story from that point of view. I, you may have heard me say this before, I, I've worked with, people who were so much more gifted than I and could do double backflips as well as tell a great joke. But they didn't get the opportunity necessarily to look at a script and figure out, okay, what do I want in, in this scene? And uh, I am lucky to have gotten that grounding uh, while I was thinking about dancing and physical comedy and the circus and any other physical manifestation of performance. Uh, what a pretentious phrase, but any other way to be physical in front of an audience. Uh, I, I'm really lucky I looked at that scene work and uh, have been able to hold my gaze with people like Edward Albee and uh, uh, anyone directing his work and say, yes, I think I, I think this about this scene because I got the chance to start there as a, as a student actor. Because how many people are Mr. Noodle and played George in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway and wanted to, do you know what I mean? Like, do you understand how crazy that is? It's absolutely crazy. It makes no sense. I have a wonderful letter. Gosh, I hope I can find it someplace. It's among that massive box of stuff that you always want to keep. Yeah from a, a, a gentleman who said, I just watched you as a serial killer on CSI and my kids watch you as Mr. Noodle. This kind of creeps me out, but I wanna thank you for your work. Uh, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. <laughs> yeah. It has creeped me out on occasion. The, the joy, if that's the right word, or certainly the engagement, the galvanizing intensity of looking into unattractive characters. And at the same time, I've always, for better or worse, I'm not sure it's the best thing in the world, but it's always been an instinct of mine to try to uh, engage with an audience in a simpatico way, which is at the center of a lot of clowning, craft of clowning. Yeah. I mean, here's a question. Can timing be taught? 
can comedic timing be taught or do you have to have, you know, everyone says like, it's funny in threes or words with, you know, I did a Neil sign, you know, Neil was like, if it's got a T-neck is better than, you know, large mop. Like he would always have these, I was like, okay, Hackensack, great. Um, so, so as a writer, Neil had very specific words and rhythms that he found. And, and as a, you know, as, as comedians, there's, there's one version of sort of timing and in physical comedy, you know, there are things that, that you can really count on. And is that something anyone can do, or do you have to intuit it on some level? What a good and unanswerable question. I think you have to learn it, mm -hmm. but it has to somewhere be in you too. I mean, Mr. Simon's greatest lines are best in some people's hands and they're still still uh, beautifully crafted lines, but just not as strong sure. in the hands of other people who just don't have uh, that, I was gonna, I'm trying to call it not a gift, but that handle on how you lay out uh, the K's that he found so funny and the, right. the rhythm of a question and, and who can see the danger, the, both the, uh, the essential necess necessity of rhythm, but also the danger of seeing it only rhythmically because after a while you start to hear people who have the rhythm of comedy. Uh, it's really clear that they want you to laugh. And, but you're not necessarily invited in or given that kind of glint in the eye that says, oh, this person has some, something funny about them or some, some uh, take on what it is that is funny about life. So that's what it is. It's a take, it's a take about how this individual, a take on your individual observations of life. Yes, it is. It is. Right. And you have to nurture them and trust them, uh, but realize that by themselves, they ain't nothing. Uh, I don't know why. I can't make this work logically, but it just, you're saying that reminded me of the awesome realization sometimes that somebody you're introduced to and okay, now you're going to work together. And well, this person is really terrific and we are just flowing together that later and sometimes like years, decades later, courtesy of YouTube and our technology today, you see that person's greatest stuff or earliest stuff and realize what an oblivious fool you were. And, and thankfully so that you just connected with that person and, uh, and did the best work possible. So I mean, Robin Williams pops into my head as, yes, as one of the people who you've worked with multiple times. Um, David Shiner, obviously, yes. your your work your work wife for <laughs> for, me, for on many many projects. Um, in that phrase to use, please. But yes, true. Also, um, Martin Short. Uh, yeah with whom, oh, you know, I've worked glancingly on this bit or that gala or something. And just because it was lockdown, I found myself watching Marty Short's first appearance on The Tonight Show and saw Johnny Carson, which is a name I know from the distant past, but he's a kind of bellwether for those of us of my generation. And he was a, Mr. Carson was a brilliant comic himself. But one of the things that was so great was to watch his face when he saw someone that truly lit him up. Martin Short won Robin Williams' first appearance on uh, The Carson Show. Yes. So were you doing plays as a kid or just running around your house, like running into walls, making people laugh, Buster uh, Keaton style? Running into walls, whether it made people laugh or not, however. Did it make your parents laugh? Were they a good audience or was, well, can we talk a little about that? The better test is I had very indulgent parents and I think they were even proud though concerned about my predilections. But here's a nuts and bolts example of what, you, of what I think you may be talking about there. Yeah. I was the oldest of three kids and often it was my job either explicitly or implicitly to keep your brother and sister happy 
that's key, you know, there's, we have this to do, we have that to do. And so, and I'm sorry, I've told this story many times, but uh, getting my- Not on this podcast, you know. Well, here it comes. <laughs> it was my job to be the guy who couldn't get on the bed. And that would keep my sister from, you know, going in the other room and saying, mom, I'm, I'm bored. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't say I perfected the man who couldn't get on the bed, but I certainly strung him out for a long, many, many beats. So that was the first successful bit. I suppose, I suppose there's, it's that feeling of, uh, you know, comics have talked about currency or power or you feel your place in the world when other people laugh. It can get, um, it can get awry and distasteful and take over your life in not the most sympathetic way sometimes, but it is a power. And yes, when you first feel it, uh, it's, it gets you, it gets you and it propels you forward. Is that your favorite thing? Because you do very serious pieces of work also. Um, you're not always in clowning or comedic performances. So, but is that the best feeling? Yeah, what a good question. It is a truly great feeling when all things seem to come together. There were times when I was on stage with David Shiner, don't tell him this, but mm. I would be standing next to him and I think, oh, that just went really well. There were no words involved, but the, some bit of business, that just went really well. This is where I've always wanted to be on this stage and, and hearing and sharing in this kind of laughter. But then uh, other work does call you. And yes, as you, as you ask, uh, telling the story of parts of life where your job really is to tell the story of loss. And it doesn't necessarily preclude laughter, but it's not really centered around laughter as a currency the way other kinds of comic work is, but when it's your job to tell the story of loss as an actor, as a storyteller, uh, it, it's a profound feeling of responsibility, but that's a little highfalutin. It's also, it just pulls you like a rope through water. If you're holding onto a rope and a boat is towing, that's the kind of feel, feeling of forward pull that you can get sometimes with storytelling. Years ago, and, and I mean, decades ago, uh, I, I got to be part of a project. And Alana, it's interesting. I don't think about this consciously that often because it was a long time ago, but it just popped into my head. The Flea Theater downtown, which has changed and gone through many iterations. And I'm not sure in this COVID time what uh, organization may exist as the, mm, but yeah. Jim Simpson of the Flea Theater directed a play that a first time playwright had written in response to September 11th. And within uh, weeks of the terrorist attack, he had people doing this play, he did it as a reading. And I got to do this play with the most incredible array of colleagues, Sigourney Weaver. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just, uh, never good for old men to start sentences with a lot of names involved because the names are, are uh, fighting within me. But I got to do this play with a lot of different people, old and young. And one night, the, the families of the fallen uh, first responders about whom the play, around whom the play centered, the play was the writing of eulogies for four lost uh, members of the fire department, family members of those firefighters were in the audience. And there was intense laughing because you knew, here are people who knew these people better than, there was sobbing and the feeling of joy and exhilaration, but responsibility as a storyteller was really one I deeply remember from that night. Yeah. You're, I'm gonna say a name and you're just gonna, tell me a little bit about why he was important for you, if he was important for you, but Herbert Blau. Wow, what a great invitation. Herbert Blau is, 
uh, not the household name that Buster Keaton is, nor Mike Nichols or uh, other names that some of us like to throw around in podcast land, but Herbert Blau was a great mentor and hero to me, maybe unlikely hero. We always used to joke, those of us in Herb Blau's group, like we're being guided through plays that ask you to contemplate the divine and what a hero is, what a war hero is, what a moral hero is by a man who looks like a Jewish tailor. And there, it leads to some unlikely uh, moment. There was a moment, well, first of all, Herb Blau was a teacher, a writer. Sometimes his prose got pretty abstruse and some people didn't care for his prose. I'm not sure I even know what to make of his prose often, but as a man in a room, he was just an exciting, leader and thinker about the theater. He said something, I don't know whether he was quoting somebody, he said, he said, a, a performance is always about itself. You're always performing the story of telling the story. And so the deeper you pretend you are Ajax or King Kong or uh, Martin in the goat, the deeper you pretend that, the more you're telling the audience about your telling of the story. And it can, sound abstruse and self-reflexive in a distracting way, but it, uh, those of us who got to work with him, I think were given a glimpse at a kind of muscular power. He used to talk about the muscularity of the intellect. And it really freed people who were very heady into thinking, I may have something to offer. I don't do those dive rolls that the other guy does. I don't do the hand back handsprings that the other guy does, but the muscularity of the intellect that, that this story requires is something that I might be able to bring to the table. And you followed him to Oberlin, right? Yes, uh, a group of us did from CalArts where he was let go, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And he uh, landed on his feet as Herb had a way of doing. Mm -hmm. uh, positioned at Oberlin College. And yes, a bunch of us went there and became Oberlin students. Some of us had barely heard of the place before that, but Oberlin became our work home. And Oberlin is, a, is, is my alma mater now and my, um, is a work home in my mind, is a home. But at the time, we just knew it was really cold in January in, uh, in Ohio, and we were coming from Southern California. And yes, we worked together with Herb on a series of projects. Uh, some saw the light of day, some didn't, but he was an important mentor and hero. When you, when you, you know, in, in sort of looking at the timeline of your life after that community that you were part of, that you're describing with Mr. Blau, and you go to Ringling Brothers College? Yes, I did. So, so, Obviously, you're you're now looking to to try more of something else. Um, it 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 isn't an obvious choice uh, it, for the for the biography reader of your life um, in some ways, but yet it makes perfect sense in others in terms of where your passion for performing began. But what made you literally go to Clown College? The Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Clown College, which I attended in 1974, is no more. Well, yeah, circus arts are a great uh, cultural preoccupation right now, thank goodness. However, the art of the circus has changed so much. The Ringling Show, for many reasons, uh, first took out um, certain stock, as they use the word, and didn't perform with elephants, and then canceled the show. The, the long history of that show just was untenable for the producers who are really uh, good, good show people. Wow. Yeah. So is that a family for generations that are the Ringling, is the Ringling family a long time or is it other people who run it? Yes, the Ringling family, though their name uh, lived on. The Ringling family were not involved in the circus past about the early mid-60s. Okay. The Feld family bought the uh, show, bought the operations. Everyone thought they were crazy and really initiated a second golden age of uh, 
of American circus. Then that gives way to Cirque du Soleil and other things and uh, animal rights objections and, and just human objections to seeing animals in ways that were not uh, the oblivion of the past. It just made them uh, not as objectionable. And all that gave way to uh, the current moment where circus is in redefinition yet again. Did you find your people? Yes, there were a bunch of us from uh, lots of places. There was a guy who had resigned his commission as a captain in the US Army, he was a Vietnam vet. There were people who, um, yeah, lots of people, some of whom are still in touch with each other. And we spent a lot of time looking at basics. You know, the uh, man who couldn't get onto the bed that I had pioneered with my sister became I was challenged by a great, great clown by the name of Lou Jacobs. He's on the postage stamp. His face is sort of synonymous with circus clown. He said, yeah, well, well you're gonna trip on the, on the ring curb there. You gotta, how are you gonna do it? You got, yeah, but you gotta do it so that the people see you. And it was really, it was the challenge of the masters to the would-be masters. So what is a typical day? at that school? What, I mean, is it trapeze? Is it, is it um, juggling? It, like what, what is it, is it course by course, day by day, semester by semester? It was, as I say, it doesn't, uh, it's not in existence. Not anymore, yeah. It was, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm gonna start again. It was, and as one learns, as one gets older and talks to the people who are running the school, it was also, uh, designed a program designed to keep people really busy and out of trouble because we were there from all over the country all over the world really so they started this very early with stretching and strength exercises first thing in the morning and on these mats which were redolent of a certain uh, trace of tiger urine everybody said uh, what is that smell and then when they were told it made you shut up. The, the rubber matting was the same that they had used uh, under the cat acts. And they'd been washed, but they were still redolent. And uh, yeah, we did that. We looked at gags. We looked at makeup. We did, this is, this is very corporate in a way. We looked at how to uh, do the best Ringling Brothers clown interview with the press because a lot of what you are as a clown is a representative of the show that you work with. And did That's, you join that circus? I did not for complicated reasons. I've always owed the Ringling organization and the Feld family a huge debt of gratitude. Any laughs I've ever gotten or at least certain percentage belong to the Feld family because I learned a lot there, but I know I did not uh, go on to work with either of the Ringling units. But, okay, so I happen to know Lorenzo Pisoni, who's a, a son of the Pickle family circus troupe. Yep. Um, I, know, I know that at some point you lived with that family or, or worked with that circus. Um, I or did. I was in the room when Lorenzo was born and I love to tell him that. <laughs> I love to tell anybody that story, especially when he's around, just to watch him sort of uh, cringe slightly. But yes, in the 1979, I think Lorenzo was born, I was in the room there and he came into the world and uh, the story among the, all the circus people is that he, his legs were going like this the moment Dr. Snyder held him in the air. And that's kind of been Lorenzo's story. Ever. Yeah. He did a great, I, I was lucky to invest a, a, a very small amount, which is what I had at the time, into his documentary about, about his family. And it's, um, did you ever see it? The Pickle Family oh, Circus documentary? I have seen it as many times as Participated in it, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's a fantastic expose and deep dive into what that world is. It is a truly wonderful documentary film, yeah. And I can't watch it easily. So I've never just dialed it in. I think I'll sit down and watch that again for enjoyment. No, it is, it is a wonderful and inspiring, but heavy, heavy story. Yeah. I, I was on the stage with Lorenzo's father when he had an injury or, uh, or he hurt himself in a, in a beautiful fall 
the other guy and I on stage said, God, Pozzoni's never been that high before. And sure enough, he came down and uh, it was a wrong landing. So the film is full of moments that are, uh, well, they're just the kind of capturing that a documentary film is about. And it, yes, Circus Kid is a wonderful film. Yes, um, which in a way, although you were not born into it, you are also a circus kid. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Do you not see yourself that way? You know, Alana, I think, and I've thought about this before, but I think a lot of us who formed that circus were driven with an envy uh, or, or, or with a feeling of uh, inauthenticity that we hadn't been of that world. So we like, we made up for it. Mm-hmm. You know, we did nothing but juggle for certain hours and we did nothing but uh, work on stuff in order to try to catch up. Very different backgrounds, most of us, than Lorenzo had, who was truly- Literally his DNA, yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So how do you, I guess, I guess because there are so many chapters in your life, but how did you pivot so successfully from being in, you know, the, the, the pickle family um, and, and then performing your own things that were, were theater pieces um, that, that joined all of your, your passions for vaudeville and, and clowning and, and text um, and passion and empathy. Uh, how do you harness all that and, and, and leave a circus and become a, a theater junkie in the way that you were and are? There were two ways in which I was really fortunate. One is having worked with Herb Blau Mm-hmm. And the way of understanding a kind of self-excuse me, self-referential way of looking at performing that didn't lessen it, or at least in our hope, it didn't lessen it, it deepened it for an audience. And I had done really basic scene work as a freshman at UCLA, which as I said before, I was so grateful for and, and found it so useful when the time happened to come when that was the work that I felt I could serve best or that I really wanted to do. So I had to convince some people that, yes, I, uh, I, yes, I had twirled my hat and I've spent hours of an ill-spent youth twirling a hat. But uh, I, I think I'm equipped to tell these incredible stories that you, playwrights have written. Sometimes I was right, sometimes I've been wrong. Uh, playwrights and, and screenwriters and, and TV writers. Sometimes I haven't served them well, but uh, I, I'm not good at, at talking to students who are trying to negotiate their trajectory or initiate a trajectory into this world. And how did that happen? And so you got to do that. You just uh, pursue it so that it can't not happen. It's such an easy thing to say, and it rarely actually works out exactly like that. But there are, um, and again, I got to do it in the absence of the internet. There was a a depth of um, rumination that I think we were able to, or we didn't have any, any choice, but to ruminate on things, look at things, without the number of distractions that exist today for young people. And uh, so, yes, I got to go from one kind of craft to another. Sometimes in the middle of the night, Alana, I wake up and think, well, you jerk, you haven't served any of them as well as you might have by jumping around between them. It's too late to uh, let regret rule life. So I have to hope that's not totally the case, but it is. It raises a question: Do you deepen uh, pursuit of one craft, or do you try to reinvent yourself and do different things? Everybody has their own answer there to that question. Yeah, but I mean, you do full moon, right? And you 
I mean, I keep hearkening back to it because I think your role is as Anne Hathaway's father. And I, I, I don't know what your experience on Rachel getting married was. One of the great um, gifts of an actor's life. Okay, okay. One of the smallest paychecks and one of the greatest gifts uh, that an actor could ever have was to be part of that movie. And it was like working on a play. That was interesting. And, and Jonathan Demme is, was, I'm sorry, he's no longer. Yeah. Jonathan's work was not in the theater. Jonathan was a creature of filmic storytelling, but somehow uh, he and all of us worked as if we were working on a play in, in the making of that movie. Yeah, it, you just dug in. Yeah, we did. It's a terrific script. And Jonathan, so gracious, he always said, uh, Jenny Lumet wrote this script and about 98% of the script is, is Jenny's. And in a way that was true, but also he was, as I'm sure Jenny, where she part of this conversation would agree, he was running what she had written through a lens that came to him. So it was a uh, true honor to be part of that project. Best, I mean, not best like she's never been good since, but among the best things that Annie Hathaway yeah. uh, ever uh, undertook and ever, uh, she undertook it and she pulled off both. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I only bring that up because you, you have done both those things, right? And, and just to, as my rebuttal to your statement, Your Honor, about maybe you should have dug more deeply into one thing, I think it's pretty exciting to see how deeply you have dug into so many things and have um, given us those opportunities to witness you in those different kinds of stories. Um, and, and we've gotten so much out of it. So I'm glad, selfishly. Um, how did you meet David? Is it Shiner or Shinner? Shiner. Shiner, okay. I thought I said Shiner, but then I thought because our our technology went out, I thought you said Shinner and I was like, my whole life I've been saying it wrong or you're very tired. Um, how did you guys meet? He came through New York uh, with the Cirque du Soleil. It's one of the greatest pieces of performance theater, that particular show, the acts and shiners uh, threading through his clown work. It was just a wonderful example of a man's work because he'd been developing these bits on the street over years. He brought them into the Cirque du Soleil show. Uh, he came through town and he had seen a video of something I'd done called the Regard of Flight. So we were both intensely jealous of each other. We sniffed each other like dogs. We have a, a sardonic relationship. If I could carry this conversation with you on and call him Shinner for uh, the entire period, would, would a certain, it would delight a certain part of me. But uh, we had no idea how we might ever connect. Like I said, we kind of sniffed. We had, he invited me to lunch at a place called the Harlequin Restaurant, which doesn't exist anymore, but I always thought that was auspicious, but we didn't quite know what to say to each other. This I will always remember though, Ilana. I went to see that Cirque show and then I wanted to see it as many times as I could. My mother came to visit New York and she and I went. And I've never seen my mother laugh so hard. You know, and I've, I've sat there next to her sometimes thinking, well, you know, she'll come to a piece of- I do some stuff. Yeah, I do. <laughs> People kind of like it. <laughs> I've been known to laugh at things, yeah. like, but my mother's always kind of polite and uh, very uh, uh, supportive. Yes. Well, she couldn't stay in her chair while Shiner's on stage, nor could I. I just, uh, nor can Shiner, interestingly. Yeah. I'll tell you a story. We sat and watched video, like, what in the world did we do? We have to go back and watch the video to remember how we did that bit. Well, Shiner sees himself, he can't stop laughing. And the thing is, I join him. I'd love to poke fun at him or point out uh, the fact that he is appreciating his work so deeply, but it's just infectious. He was, he's, he was in a lawsuit simply where somebody stole his, one of his acts and he had to go to court in Germany. I only know this because he's told me the story, but I can absolutely see it. He said the judge sat there and watched the other guy's rendition of this act and made some notes and went, mm -hmm, yeah. He watched Shiner's version, and I know the act very well. I've probably seen it 1,200, literally 1,200 or more times. And the judge couldn't stop laughing. And she, the thing is, Shiner tells this story, and it would be 
the worst kind of egotism in the hands of some storytellers. But you just, I, did, I know exactly what happened. That judge laughed and Mr. Schinner won the case. David Schinner won the case in Germany. In Germany, where he lives. He is an expat and lives there with his wife who's German. And uh, so we only have uh, WhatsApp and email with which to make each other's lives. Tease each other. Yeah, um, you came to Broadway pretty quickly with your first show by, I mean, some people would, would say that. Um, was that the dream? Uh, are you talking about Full Moon or there was another show which came to Broadway very quickly, probably never should have gone to Broadway, but only the madness of a really truly wonderful producer named Jim Friedberg brought a show called Largely New York. No, but that was your first. That's what I'm talking about. That's that was your first. Yeah, it absolutely. was my first. I had 17 performances or were, were <laughs> we didn't run a long time, but I think we may have played more than 17. 70. <laughs> is it on the wall at Joe Allen or or not? Might be. Might be. So few. It was uh, one of those low years in Broadway when everybody was predicting, oh, Broadway will end within the decade. Mm. Uh, yeah, they're always so wrong about that. But it was a very slim year. So we were nominated for many Tony Awards. We didn't win one of them, but uh, there were many categories in which we were among the nominees. And it was a show that it was a confusing, odd show. It only lasted, it was billed as 75 minutes, but we got it down to where it was really 65 minutes, which is not what a Broadway audience usually bargains on. The stagehands loved us. They said, let's run this forever. Yeah. Uh, and audiences loved it, though, though they were often confused. God, it was a wonderful thing that we got to do it. And then the same madman, Jim Fredberg, was the guy who brought Full Moon to Broadway. Which, you know, brought you global attention? Oh, I suppose. It brought us eight shows a week where we had to figure out whether we still wanted to do it that way. That's the thing about physical comedians, any comedian who's in charge of his or her own uh, material, you're yeah. always trying to refine it. You're always trying to improve it, often with disastrous results. But the, the, thing, the show came and went. There were two... A wonderful, got to be friends, uh, two young women from Japan who came to see the show something like 17 or 24 times. We all lost track. But one of them said to me at some point, you know, it's, sometimes it's not so good. <laughs> sometimes it's not so good. Sometimes it's not as good as the other. Yeah, yeah. the other 32 times. Who directed that? We did which makes no sense, but we were, it's creators and directors and uh, Friedberg somehow let that be. And somehow it was not a mistake. It might've been a mistake in other people's hands. But... And so you guys could direct each other? Well, we could. Uh... Or, or form the piece and keep honing it and honing it. But, but would you have certain, was there a person who would come in an outside eye or was that Jim? and kind of who you'd invite, invite in and say, we're, we're in it, can you come watch and give us feedback? Yeah, I'm gonna say something really crucial about a part of theater that many people who love theater wouldn't necessarily fully understand and that's stage management. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a stage manager whom I worked with for many years on lots of different projects. She was a co-author of a show called The Regard of Flight. She was a co-author of Largely New York. She was a co-author of Fool Moon, and uh, she was the outsider. Her name is Nancy Harrington. She's a director, stage manager, theater person. Jim Wood, yes, and the band, the, the, the Red Clay Ramblers were. Yeah, so what's next, Bill Irwin? Well, something before the glue factory. You always hope there are just a couple more gigs before the glue factory. Television is a great uh, a way to work in this time. It's the golden age. It's another golden age of television. Thank goodness for all of us actors. And you're in the Gilded Age. I am. I have a tiny role in the Gilded Age. And God, is it going to be magnificent. I can only say that from somebody who 
I mean, I can truly say that from somebody who's been around, watch these directors work, watch the writers hone that story. It is an incredible story to be contemplating right now in this mm. Gilded Age. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, I am. And I get to uh, show up, uh, work in other people's stories. The, the, uh, the incredible phenomenon known as Law and Order SVU, which has kept storytelling, it's storytelling alive for 22 seasons, 23 seasons. When they're maybe hoping for 25, I don't know. A wonderful new show called New Amsterdam with fantastic people on camera and, and behind camera. And I got to play a small role there. So anytime you can peek in and be part of uh, other people's storytelling, great. For me, it's always, I hope always to be doing that alongside of projects of my own. And uh, there's a, an evening I put together called, which I have called On Beckett. It's the sharing of passages from Samuel Beckett's work and then talking more succinctly than I am so far with you, Ilana, but talking about the experience of living with this language and sharing it with audiences over a lot of years. You still get so excited. I do, I do, especially because I am booked for two days in November in an actual theater. There you go. Some form will be back in a theater. Oh, that's incredible. Um, well, Bill Irwin, I really hope you'll come back. There's just um, so much story of Bill Irwin to tell. And thank you for your generosity with your time and your work and your artistry and your philanthropy and your kindness and, and just the, the joy thank and you. thoughtfulness you spread in the world. Thank you very best with everything you've got going as we reemerge. Yeah, yeah. All right, my friend, well, be well. Thank you. Get One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out. And I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. The episode was edited by Nicholas Klar. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa.